Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. I know you folks have come to expect a title of the song from me. And by the way, Dan Nathan is in fact back from his hiatus, his vacation. Dan, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm back. Of course, we're joined by Danny Moses. We got a special guest for you. Stuart Sop, CEO and co-founder of Current, will be joining us in just a second. But in 1980, I believe I was a sophomore in college, and the police, Danny Moses, you may remember this, they released their album, Zenyata Mandata, right? You recall that? And one of the songs on that album, Dan, was Canary in the Coal Mine. By the way, you are listening to the On The Tape podcast. I am Guy Adami, Danny Moses, Dan Nathan. And I mentioned Canary in the Coal Mine because I got to tell you something, and it's great we have Stuart on board today. These banks, to me especially over the last few days, are exactly that. They are the aforementioned canary in the coal mine. So, Dan, how are you? Welcome back. I'm doing well. We've been doing a lot of content all week, and it's kind of interesting. You know, we're going to talk about some of the themes in the markets, this push into mega cap tech. It just seems like flight to quality, flight to stability, whatever the heck you want to call it. I mean, but the backdrop has been continuing weakening of regional banks, despite what regulators all over the world, not just here, but also obviously in Switzerland, are doing and saying extraordinary measures that they're taking, at least from a sentiment standpoint, shore up these things. But the price action's really bad. And it's really bad here. We're Thursday into the close here. So we're going to talk about all of that. All right. Before we get to Stuart, though, Guy, should we do a little housekeeping here? I love housekeeping. You know what's funny? When I was a kid, I used to watch Hazel. Remember that as a kid? What, you, you watched something on the radio when you were a kid? Hazel Because there Booth. were TVs around then. Hazel Booth oh, was okay. a great housekeeper. And you know who else was a great housekeeper? If we're going down this road would be, of course, Alice from the Brady Bunch, that'd be sure. Ann B. Davis. Sure. Sorry, Dan, please no, continue. All right, so here's the deal. We do a lot of content. You know, Guy and I do the market call that is on our Risk Reversal Media YouTube page. So go find that, follow it. Smash subscri- the shit out of the sub- like button. Subscribe to that. Also, leave us, you know, reviews, whether it be Spotify, the Apple Podcast Store for this fine podcast, OK Computer, Market Call. So all of that stuff. All right, let's get to it. We have a special guest here in the studio. There we do. It is Stuart Stop. Hi, Stuart. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me today. He had to endure the first four <laughs> minutes of this well, show. Well, you know what it is? It's like you, you, get, you guys listen to Smart List. That's Bateman, it's Arnett, and it's Sean yeah, Hayes. Yeah, that's and my favorite podcast. So the three of those guys talk, and then they bring in a special guest, and usually like only one of them know. And that guest has to sit there and listen to the BS that goes on well, for like five so minutes. That's what, we, that's what we just did to you. Um, so, Stuart, you, know, you are the CEO founder of a fintech company. I think our listeners have gotten to know you over the last year or so, but you also, in a past life, was a macro trader, you're a Forex trader, you traded at large banks all over the world. Talk to us a little bit because I think this conversation is perfect for you right now. You know how traditional banks work, you know how risk assets are traded, but you've also built a fintech company serving a consumer base here in the U.S. that has been very affected by the move in interest rates, by some of the stuff that's going on in the economy. Talk to us a little bit about what has this last few weeks been like for you looking at it through both lenses that you look at markets and the economy? Finally, I I could call my mom and say, I'm relevant. You know, (laughs) I did 16, 17 years of macro trading. 
and then eight years as CEO of co-founder of, of Current. So I think I'm well-placed. I got two hats, two, you know, two things, two lenses to look at what's going on right now. Thanks. Obviously, we had SVB, we've had Signature, we've had all these, I would say, business banks that are catering to somewhat higher risk and consolidated or concentrated deposits. And so obviously, I think it's well known now why some of these things have failed and gone into receivership. From a macro point of view, and when you look at the Fed yesterday with the 25 raise, I think, you know, you zoom out a bit. I think Powell did okay. I think what they're doing is a controlled demolition. They're draining liquidity still, and they know it's over-indexing on these regionals, the smaller banks, and they don't like that because politically it's bad, and it's also just bad for America. We have a decentralized banking system, and, and they don't want to destroy that. But at the same time, look at back, look at Schwab and all these guys, they're starting to feel the pressure, right? And so I thought they did a good job of walking that line, given all the noise and the backdrop and everyone and the social media around, like saying, hey, is this, is this okay? So I think we're in a controlled demolition move. I think they're moving forward. And I think from a macro perspective, it is far less worrying to the Fed and to people in the White House than maybe people um, at the grassroots level, the people who own businesses and that. And with that other hat, when I'm, you know, the tech CEO hat, I'm like, it's hugely disturbing. It's, it's terrible. And we had the worst like, couple of weeks. It was really hard for us to really work out what was going on. We were very lucky at Current. We kept, obviously, some deposits at SVB, just like everyone else. We weren't adversely affected. We managed to move relatively quickly. And also, we have other uh, bank accounts. But you know, just talking to people in the industry, knowing other CEOs and, and the rest of it, it was a hugely destabilizing, distracting event. And I think the Fed, the Treasury, and everyone else, the regulators who came in and sort of temporarily guaranteed deposits and, and just made a pretty seamless transition from what happened. And one last thing I'd say is, you know, the VC community gets a bad rap. <laughs> they always do, right? And I, look, we, there's a love-hate relationship between everyone in this in this game. Of course, there were some VCs that probably did, you know, create you know a certain amount of bank run and that consolidation. Oh, we're going oh, to get to we're those gonna guys, to that. aren't we, Danny, yeah, yeah, at yeah. some point? You got that yeah. right. You got that yeah. right. <laughs> what I would call out, just say to, to your listeners and to, you know, anyone that's listening, I saw an amazing amount of good things from VCs. Our investors, I think they all came together. They were trying to make it work. And I thought that was awesome to see. We haven't seen that in a while. You and I were talking during that time period, kind of that three or four day period. And for people that are investors in current or use the platform, I want you guys to know something. There was not only was there no panic in Stuart, he completely realized, and I think early how this thing was going to kind of play out. So let me put that. However, you just used the word demolition, man, another police reference to go back to guys opening, right? One of the great albums that's, but on that album, I was going to talk about driven to tears, which is on that same album uh, guy that you were talking about. So Stuart, let me disagree a little bit on Powell. I think he stood his ground yesterday, but let me bring up two quotes that he said. One, during the first weekend of the Silicon Valley debacle, we were all trying to figure out what happened. Okay. That's horrifying. Okay. The second was that not seeing signs that we need to stop QT. Well, I got two alerts for you, Jerome. One is that you just added 300 billion to your balance sheet. So you're now back up to kind of 8.6 trillion. So you're really kidding yourself. Two, the two securities you've been running off are at the root of all this evil. And let me give a shout out to the Bank of England here real quick, who raised 25 basis points today, this guy Bailey, and made a comment, a shot at the Fed directly and Treasury and said, listen, we had our HSBC over here have to bail out SVB. We told you guys weeks ago, we reached out to the San Francisco Fed months ago to tell you, they really called us out on that. So I thought all that happening, really, just to bring it back to little England love there, the one thing that the bulls and bears both have in common is that they think that the Fed is done, which is funny. Because the bears think they're done because we think that the, this tightening credit is going to have the a much bigger impact rate. And the bulls think it's done because it's finally, you know, green light. So I think we're at a really interesting time here. Do you really believe what the Fed says? Like, do, do, like for me, being an old market participant, I feel like they say things to control the narrative, to get like narrative tightening or loosening. And I don't really believe 100% of the things they say. I think they do things for effect. And that's just like a derivative of, because they've got one tool, right, Danny? It's like, they got one tool for the whole thing. And it's like, they need to use language and like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that just happened because it buys them another quarter or another month or whatever. So, so I think on that, I think you're right. I mean, maybe we, I shouldn't give them credit, but you know, if the BOE was picking up on the SVB balance sheet and the treasury YOLOing that they did, come on, they, they definitely did know. I think they are walking a line and it needs narrative and the policy action, and it's tough. I just want to put this in perspective. And then I, I totally agree with you. I don't envy their position. It's hard. But let's just go back how bad they've been over the last few years. Just, I would say, incompetent. Not deliberately. A year ago, when they raised rates for the first time on March 17, 2022, the dot plot that they gave out showed rates ending at 1.75% Fed funds at the end of 22 and a terminal value of 250 basis points. Second, 
The Atlanta Fed wrote a piece in July of 2022, and I talked about this almost a year ago, and said that the quantitative tightening impact is the equivalent to 29 basis points of tightening. Anyway, to think that we were going to go from free money to high cost money and not have an impact is just, it's not logical. That's all. They're trying over and over again, they being the Federal Reserve, trying to fix the problems that they created. And here's the example. So let's just say now they're pausing whatever they are trying to do. They're pausing because they broke something. They broke something because they raised rates fighting the inflation that they begged for for years, thinking they could control because they were too accommodative for far too long. So they create a problem, they fix the problem, which creates another problem, which they try to fix again. This goes on and on and on. They got to get out of their own way. And I am an absolute hater. I am proud of that. And I say it all the time. I could link back almost every problem we had, including Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX, Silicon Valley Bank, all the shit that's going on to the doorstep of the Federal Reserve. So just so people understand if they've never listened before, I am a hater. But with that said, doesn't mean that I'm wrong. I'm with you. And also they have acted slowly. The transitory language was damn wrong. And I'm surprised that some of these regionals sort of didn't see that coming, right? Like it's kind of on them, right? And, and also the equity has been wiped out and they have paid the price with their jobs. So I think there's that. Coming back to your point, Danny, earlier, you know, bulls and bears think that this is over. And I think that's right. There's 100 points, 100 bips uh, of cuts priced by the end of the year. But then you've got Powell saying he's not going to do anything yet. We're not going to cut. And I think that's the right line to tow. Now, realistically, as we get into Q2, into Q3, especially Q2, it's about 12 to 16 months. You're going to have to remind me when we first did a rate, Fed rate hike, right? It was March 22. Thank you. Yeah. And so to, as we know, there is at least a year's lag. We know that, right? And so then it increased. The acceleration increased into later in that tightening cycle. So I'm imagining now that we're going into Q2. The tightening is going to keep happening. Also, the front loading of the variable rate of everyone's credit card, auto loans, all that stuff's hurting right now. Also, mortgages and all that stuff. And then you're going to get this like base effect from, from the lag effect from the Fed Federal Reserve tightening from zero, from negative real interest rates, heavily into Q2. And I think it's going to be nonlinear about what gets busted here. I think like the regional thing's interesting. Bank of America's interesting. Schwab's interesting. All those things. I'm like, okay, there's fires. It's not endemic systemic. It's, it's sort of like contagion. But like we're about to go into a real situation, I think, in Q2. Well, it feels very March, April 2008, to be yeah. very honest with you, because the Bear Stearns thing, no one really saw that coming. There were a few out there who were saying that there's some stuff bubbling up on these balance sheets. There's some toxic assets. There's some real capital shortfalls. And, and Danny, I know that's something, obviously, you can wax poetically about. The one thing I'll just say, and I got to push back at, at Guy for a little bit, and I think a lot of our longtime listeners know this, too, is that I feel like what's happened in the last three years with what the Fed has been charged with doing, the sort of monetary stimulus coupled with the fiscal stimulus in the face of the pandemic was particularly necessary, right? When you think about the fact that we're having in the financial system right now, yes, it's on the other side of this seesaw sort of situation where we went to zero rates, we went to lots of monetary and fiscal, that was global, it caused inflation, we had the breakdown of supply chains because of the pandemic, which caused inflation inflation. The Fed finally figured out that they were wrong-footed about how long they were easing and what they were buying, right, in quantitative easing. And, you know, I think you guys were the first one to say in November of 2021, thank goodness that you guys are figuring it out now. And so I guess my point is, is like, then the gut punch was really the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, right, which just highlighted a lot of these energy supply issues and supply chain issues in, in general. So I feel like to lay it all on the foot of the Fed is not particularly fair. That's my two cents here. And I think everyone knows how you feel about it. Everyone knows how I feel about it now. And so I guess the point is, is like we have a situation with these banks. When you talk about driven to tears, Danny, this is totally weird. This morning, I put on a bootleg of Pearl Jam at Madison Square Garden from May 2nd, 2016. I was at that show. I listened to it this morning on Nugs in the encore. Eddie does a cover of Driven to Tears. Go check it out, people. That's kind of weird, okay? I'm just saying that. All right, so I want to talk about this because this is really important. There was an article this morning about Charles Schwab. The CEO was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal. Our friend, your former partner, Porter Collins, okay, 
was quoted in this article. Okay, here's a hundred billion dollar market cap company. Danny, how many in assets do they have? This is a pretty b- good balance sheet here. Okay, like in general, right? But the headline, the takeaway was that the CEO is coming out unsolicited and saying that they have the ability to weather the storm, right, of if they were to lose all of their deposits. So, Danny, talk to us a little bit about what your takeaway was that. I know you and I have been talking about that over the last week. I know that you, Porter, and Vinny have been talking about it a lot over the past few months. Um, The way this stock acts, it's not particularly great. It's down, as we speak right now, 5.5%, trading very near multi-year lows. What's going on with Schwab, and is this a much bigger deal than some of these regional banks. It is because that's a true systemic in terms of that touches pretty much everybody. Let's compare it to Silicon Valley in the sense of what's the capital hole on a mark-to-market basis. They have $6 billion in tangible common equity, Schwab does, and they're facing on a mark-to-market basis about $11 billion in unrealized losses. Silicon Valley was, you know, let's say $12 billion of tangible common equity and maybe an 18 to $20 billion. So kind of a similar delta there of the $6 billion. But for the CEO to come out and say, again, I love quoting people when they, when they say things, but quote, we felt we had already prepared for this type of thing. Really? That's magnificent. I, you did not. And then it says, if we wanted to, we could tap the BTFP and we could sell CDs and we could go tap the FHLB. Well, I got news for you, Bettinger. That all comes at a very expensive cost, all the things you're talking about. So let's look past, are they going to fail? No, they're not going to fail because nothing's ever going to happen. Sorry, you have SIP insurance on brokerage funds. Could Schwab, the entity, you know, the parent company potentially kick it hit? Yes, but I think people should rest assured that they're fine. That being said, Dan, they got to do an equity raise here because I don't see how you expose yourself. Those numbers are now out there and just continue on. So they need to raise money. I am sure that there's firms like Goldman Sachs that would love to buy Schwab. Right. At a, I mean, they, they would. It's a treasure, right? That gets them back into kind of that consumer space that they've kind of been burnt on in the past. So I'm trying to separate kind of the stock price here for a minute, Dan, versus the entity itself. And I believe that the entity itself is very safe and safeguarded. Now, they need to raise capital, Dan. And the last thing I'll say is this. If you want to just value it as all things being equal on earnings and the earnings projections for 2023 are $4.10. Right? There's someone down at 333. There's someone up at five. But let's call it four dollars. Okay. We know earnings are going down as a result of what we just talked about. The fact that they're going to have to probably raise, the fact that they're going to have to tap potential. So let's call it $2.50. I'm I'm making up a number. Without clarity with the Fed still doing what they're doing and the potential for economy slowing and the stock market, if you're bearish on it, what level do you pay for that? If you want to make a valuation call, I could see a bearish argument getting to 30 to 35 without a cataclysmic thing. So I guess what I'm saying, Dan, is it pays to not be long the stock here for sure. How much you want to be shorted here is kind of a different animal. I mean, I've been just kind of rolling puts over the last week and a half in this thing because it just felt like, to me, my scar tissue from 08, 09 is like when there's smoke, there's fire. And I don't have anything other than talking to you guys and highlighting that you, Vinny and Porter, highlighting some of the issues there. Question is, the stock acts like they're about to announce some sort of raise, right? The way it's been kind of coming in. Do you cover your short? Do I get out of this thing? Because- To me, there's a really crucial point. Let's say the stock's right now at 53. Let's say they do a multi-billion dollar raise that's somewhere in the high 40s or something like that. If it can't hold that price, it's lights out. Then they move on and they get to the next name that seems really vulnerable. So Danny, like I'm just saying, take a take a play out of your 2008-09 big short playbook. What do you do in a trade like that? Well, you'd have to raise a lot to make people at ease. And if you raise a lot, it's dilutive. So pick your poison to what you're saying. And if they try to kind of do a token amount with maybe some type of strategic, you know, then I think you're right. The biggest mistake that Silicon Valley made in this whole thing was that Goldman Sachs announced this offering as their banker without it being filled. Like you can't go into the market and announce a $1.8 billion write down and not have the 2.25 billion raised. They self-fulfilled the kind of run on the bank that was going to occur. That to me was crazy. So rest assured Schwab, will not do that. I can't imagine. So Dan, to your point, I think you'll see an announcement. We raised X amount. And to your point, Dan, is it enough? And let's keep in mind, prices have risen on these assets, at least on treasuries. Mortgage-backed spreads are still kind of wide, but treasuries have rallied. So whatever that need was for Schwab, it's gone down a little bit. It doesn't alleviate you know, the big problem here, Dan, for sure. And I mentioned last week, I woke up one day and I was thinking, okay, what do I do with my Schwab, the money that's in the Schwab bank? And they had segregated 249000 in one account and created Schwab Premier Bank, and it was something else in the other. So they capped it for me, which if you're cynical like me and you see something like that, that actually makes you even more scared that they went ahead and did that for me. Sometimes proactive 
can create a more of a recursive problem. I think when you look back at Silicon Valley and what can you learn going forward with Schwab, I think you nailed it. Other than YOLOing bonds at the high, right? I can't help anyone on that. Uh, but um, I think you're right. Like, firstly, trusting Goldman Sachs to not price around and then getting an anchor of General Atlantic and just sort of like hoping for the best after realizing $2 billion loss in bonds. I think you can't do that. If they're going to do an equity raise, they've got to price it. They've got to have like really good underwriters. All that, it has to be buttoned up, right? And so it has to be done. So I think that's one. And then two, everyone's touching upon this point and it's really, really undervalued. You remember this from your 2008 days? I certainly do. Communications. Communication is so damn important in these times. And I think when you've got bull market CEOs who haven't really experienced this stuff, they just go out and think they're being proactive. Hey, I'm just going to, yeah, let's segregate all the accounts to 249. Or let's come out and say basically to the market, we're fine. That is terrible. That is red flags to bulls. It's probably meat to bears. I don't know what the other analogy is. But you've got a bear market here and you've got bear market people. And you saw the Hindenburg report today. There are people out here trying to crush stocks and make money. And if you come out and think you're being good and proactive, you better have your comms right. Silicon Valley didn't have their comms right. In fact, I don't think they had a head of comms as well as the CRO. That's a mistake. You needed someone in risk and you needed someone in comms for crisis. Now, for Schwab, they need to sort this uh, equity raise out and their comms need to be much, much better than what we saw today. Yeah, and you, you know, just to quote Guy Adami's Twitter feed, and if you're not following Guy Adami, you're oh, doing, tw- you're doing Twitter. Me. You're at Guy Adami. You're doing Twitter wrong here. Um, but you said it's not that they're trying to crush stocks. You said they're trying to find truth. And Danny, you say that all the time. And I think that's a really good point. I want to make one point about the Goldman equity capital markets group or the people that were pricing these things. I've heard this time and time again over the last week. And this is actually a legacy issue from the financial crisis. It's a legacy issue about kind of the purge of a lot of like more experienced senior bankers over the years. They're kids running these desks. They have not been in these situations. I've heard that time and time again. And I know this sounds kind of maybe like inside baseball. A bunch of directors are pricing these sorts of things, and they don't have the experience. And, Danny, the way you just laid it out, if Schwab comes to market with a multi-billion dollar deal, it's got to be done. And they got to then use the comms and the communication and basically say, this is what this does for us. These are the sorts of people that are helping us backstop this. This gives us the increased confidence to serve our clients. That did not happen. I don't expect the next company to do this to make the same mistakes again. Listen, the right thing to do, Dan, is to raise a couple billion dollars if you're Schwab. It's to put hedges on that would be very expensive from here, but just to make the point and sacrifice your 2023 earnings for the betterment of long-term viability here. And from the quotes from the CEO, I mean, Porter nailed it in his quotes in the Wall Street Journal article, but it doesn't seem like they've had that come to moment yet. And so they will, I'm sure, Dan, and you're right. Danny, does that come with like decreased buybacks? And like, how do you raise capital at rates yeah. that you wouldn't even considered six or nine months ago and still be paying the dividend that they pay and still do the buybacks? And I actually think that's potentially a huge risk to this whole sector. And you and I were talking offline. Some of these big money centers trade at like a multiple of book that normally in a decent environment, you'd be lining up to buy. But what comes with increased regulatory issues and increased dilution and maybe less cash return, maybe they're not that interesting right here. The FDIC obviously is a government agency. The SIPC is not. They have a line of credit with the government. The SIPC is made up of members like Schwab and others. And guess what they have? They keep treasuries. So they have treasuries built up at the SIPC. So I don't want to get everybody freaked out. But so if you're a member, you know, when you guys have an account like member SIPC, you're like, oh, what is that? That's probably a government agency. No, it's not a government agency. So rest assured, the other members of that SIPC are also going to want to push Schwab in that direction, Dan, which I think is kind of lost on people. Also on that album was a song called Bombs Away. And I will tell you, it's bombs away right now in that sector. Wait, is this even your like your favorite police album or no? I mean, well, I don't, ha- just, I don't nec- you know, I went to see the police. I believe in 1982, Ghost in the Machine just came out. Saw them at Madison Square Garden. I think they started with Invisible Sun, if anybody cares. I'm sure zero people do. That's a great song. It is a great song. Police are a great band. I'll say a couple things quickly. I want to ask Stuart a question. For Schwab and Goldman Sachs, I mean, Goldman Sachs, as we're sitting here, it's a $105 billion company. I think Schwab is maybe a $95 billion company. The recent low in Schwab, by the way, was 45 bucks. I think, on the 13th of March. We're trading obviously a little higher, but there's a lot of room to the downside, I think is the point. 
And I don't know how Goldman does something like that with Schwab. Maybe it's a merger of equals, quote unquote. But here's a question to Stuart, because I think this is interesting. And I've talked to him about this before when we've been in the office. My sense is, again, everything you have built at Current, your whole team, by the way, you know, it's a shining a light on what you, all the things that have gone on over the last six months, one thing after another, I think it emphasizes and it reinforces and it galvanizes your vision all along. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I appreciate that. They're very kind comments. We work really hard here. I'm sure everyone listening does as well. You know, when you're in the middle of that Venn diagram of finance and technology, and then you're dealing with an impoverished uh, blue collar uh, sector, it's... um, it's hard for everyone. So we've done an amazing job, I think, on our team. And we've continued to focus on product. So the way the market has changed is there is more hesitancy around fundraisers, around capital. The cost of capital is much higher. And the only way you can really strategize to get out of this is through high-value products, through stickier products, through th- giving back to the consumers. You know, we've had an elevated national spend. We had a trillion dollars of credit card debt. And I mean, if you squint, you say, okay, well, through COVID, it goes back to trend. But it has been an exceptionally large move. And I think there's a lot of fragility in the consumer. And they're putting it on these debts and rolling them up and all this other stuff. On the positive side, you're seeing wage prices. This is what's come through to the Fed, right? Is the 5 6%. You look at the Atlanta Fed. That's all like blue-collar, you know, sort of working-class hourly-paid workers. And so they are getting paid more and being protected a little bit from this. And then the cyclicals like services and restaurants and hospitality and things like that. And so you've got one side that's like sort of in trouble in blue collar and the other side that's kind of not. So you've got a mixed bag in there. And so making sure that we're delivering products that is going to cater to like an off cycle for half of our customer base versus the other half, it's pretty tricky. We're building a credit building product that's coming out in six weeks and then some more uh, earned wage access and getting people their money as quickly as possible later on in Q2. So focusing on the product, keeping everyone focused on our customers and, and delivering the most value. That's that's the only thing that we can control. Guy, to your point about Goldman and Schwab, in no way was I inferring they would pay anywhere near these prices. Let's give Goldman credit. Maybe they maybe they have rookies dealing in their capital markets, but in their M&A division and what they would buy, they, they're down at 10 bucks. So I'll, let me just get that out of the way. So Stuart, it's interesting because I think a lot of current clients, the millennials, Gen Y, whatever we we call them, have been going to Investopedia nonstop for the past couple of weeks, right? Looking up all these terms, looking acronyms. What is this? What am I exposed? And, and all that stuff. And it's interesting where you sit because not only are you an experienced trader in the macro front, you dealt with all these VCs raising money for the companies. So you've run the gamut here, right? And so your viewpoint, where is my funding going to come from for your company, right? You, you got that check, that box. How am I going to cater to these people? And what are you watching as far as behavior? Because I think the point you make about credit card balances moving higher, the lag effect of the Fed, this 25 basis points, yeah, maybe the markets themselves are relieved that the Fed's almost done, but that is set in stone for another increase on people's floating debt. And there's no one better to see kind of all this and kind of where you sit. And I'm, just, I'm not just saying that to slap you on the back and say, great job. I'm saying it because you are seeing, and you just described a situation I think is really important for people out there. Where do you guys kind of draw the line on pointing consumers to kind of what to do and educate them and point them to products that can be most effective or get them to think about fixing their personal balance sheet, so to speak, in this environment? That comes through from our mission and vision, really. Honestly, it's not a wriggle out of your question. We didn't want to be paternal when we started Current. It's important to have the product work together with other products that is holistic and is designed to move progress seekers people who want to get on in life, who felt held down by the existing banking or financial system. A lot of fixed fees, a lot of those problems, if you don't have a lot of money. And so lowering the barriers to entry for banking and then building products and services that are synchronous and work together. That's the whole point. And we have graduation from teen into all, all the way into our credit building product and beyond as we go into 24. In terms of like the health of the customer, at the moment we're seeing it, it's okay, but they are taking on more debt as we've seen. Everyone who banks at current basically drives. They either drive for a living or they got a car. Auto loans are like above 14% all-time high. New cars, record record high price. Used cars, 5% below record high price. There is zero inventory. Like you said, the variable rate, Danny, has gone up on credit cards. It's gone up on order loans. It's mortgages are like going back up. We've had reignition. You mentioned the BOE earlier. Reignition in Europe and especially in the UK of inflation. To me, this has major, major warning signs for the consumer. We're trying to get our products out as quickly as possible to help people. And I agree with that. And I've said it for a long time. I mean, I never underestimate the U.S. consumers want to spend money. 
I mean, they've proven time and time again that just about in any environment they will. My concern is, should they be? And I, I will tell you, against that backdrop where consumer debt in this country is at record levels, credit card debt's probably north of a trillion dollars. You mentioned autos. Obviously, student loans are up there, mortgage. I mean, there's so many different variables to this thing. On top of which, you have a Federal Reserve. I believe that if you ask them, Stuart, they want the unemployment rate to get to 5%. They don't want it to happen tomorrow, but they need it to get there. And that's millions of jobs. So that, to me, does not augur particularly well for the consumer in this environment. Just a thought, and I know these are things that you think about as well with your team. I think you're right on that number as well. It's a cyclical event here with the unemployment rate. I mean, it's amazing, right, that it's been so robust. And it is going to 5 6%. You saw those analyses saying 10%. I think we'd have absolute carnage at 10%. You know, in, in terms of that when this happens, I think that's important. Also, being a macro trader, ex-macro trader, I should say, I certainly don't trade that much now to all my investors and <laughs> customers. I think, you know, being able to look at the macro picture going forward and trying to time products to the heartbeat of that has been like the secret sauce that we've had. And I think we've had pretty good success at that. Let's switch gears for one second to, and we've been talking about this a lot. So away from the consumer, I mean, like where some of these regional banks are exposed on the commercial real estate front, right? And so when we think about, we talk about credit a lot, right? So this time around, whatever this mini crisis is, if it bubbles up into something else, it's going to start with an interest rate mismatch match, right? So we've talked about that at nauseum over the last few weeks of, you know, the issues in Danny, you kind of highlighted a little bit with what had gone on with Schwab just before. But then on the other side of this, with a slowing economy would be increased default. So like a sort of credit situation. And I think we were talking about this earlier um, in our chat. There was an article in the journal yesterday, commercial property debt creates more bank worry. Smaller banks hold around 2.3 trillion in commercial real estate debt, including rental apartment mortgages. So like this goes on and on and on. Now, interestingly, there's a guy, Bob, Bob E. Unlimited on the Twitter, Bob Elliott, and he had a thread, which I think is interesting. We'll throw that in the- Is that, um, a, is that, that. a tweet thread? Tweet thread, yeah. So it's a, it's like a multiple tweets and you put it together. And then oftentimes they'll do like a little spool of thread. There's like an emoji. Yeah, yeah. So that's doing and that. I think that should be banned, by the way. But so, so, Danny, I wanted to get your take on this because Bob E. Unlimited, which is a great handle on the Twitter, right? He said, CRE loans by small banks have gotten a lot of attention from the bank crisis crowd. So let's get a sense of the largest possible risk. And he's basically downplaying a little bit. So, Danny, curious, you, your big short crowd, you guys are doing a lot of the work. You're reading the Qs. You're reading the Ks. What, what do you see on the other side of this? Is it is it blown out of proportion? I mean, when it makes it to the Wall Street Journal sort of front page of the A section, here. It's definitely now on people's radars. But what I heard from Jay Powell and co yesterday, they don't seem to be particularly that worried right now from a credit standpoint. Why would they be worried when ignorance is bliss? And then they spent the weekend after Silicon Valley imploded wondering what happened. Are you serious? So commercial real estate is a problem in the sense of this has been going on now. I'll say it again. Blackstone, Starwood, Blackstone especially, $69 billion B-REIT, right? The private REIT, suspended redemptions in the fall, delimited them to 5% per quarter. That would have been a, quote, run on the bank, so to speak, if they didn't have those gates in place. Banks don't have gates like that. This has been going on. Office properties have been defaulting. We saw PIMCO default a month or so ago. We've seen Brookfield default on office property. So this is in motion. And what it comes down to, Dan, is what is the appropriate cap rate that investors are willing to accept for the risk of you know being an investor in these buildings. And it's gone up a lot and it keeps going up. So it is an issue. And I think the ability for banks to get these loans off their balance sheet just became a lot more expensive, meaning it's one thing to sell treasuries and agencies back to the government at par and pay some small fee to do it. Nobody, unless you reenact you know the TALF and all these other programs, you're going to have to come up with another act and get them off the balance sheet. So, Dan, you're going to have a situation where even on the small level with landlord or a developer, I should say, that owns one or two buildings that is out on 30 to 40 million gets hung on one of his properties is forced to sell the other two. So, no, Dan, I, I think it's a big issue. And I think, again, people need to do their bottom up work on banks in general. And, yeah, some of them may not have the long duration exposure on treasuries and agencies. Yes. But look what they've been making money in. Just go look how some of these banks have been making money. And it's been through commercial real estate. I mean, money's been free for a long time. The last thing I'll say is that when you do a commercial real estate kind of valuation of an investment opportunity, what you normally see is, okay, Stuart, how would you like to invest $100,000 in this property? Like, okay, let me look. You're going to get a return of 5% a year, 5% a year. And look, 
your terminal value in year five, the property that was worth 10 million, we think will be worth 15 million. You do it because you believe that the end valuation in that, that you're going to sell that property. So when you can't sell properties of those, the, you know what I'm saying? It just kind of backs its way up. It is a much more difficult thing. You cannot commoditize commercial real estate like you can treasury and agency. So yes, I think it's a major deal. I also follow that guy. The Bob E. Yeah, yeah, unlimited. And he, I think he said something like 75 to 200 billion. Yeah, it's weird. 75 to 200 billion of losses. And it's not a big thing. And like, we'll be fine. And I thought he said one key thing, which Guy may like, or even Danny, was that under the bank stress tests, yeah. that it would be 75 to 200 billion. I know <laughs> my point would be to Bob if he was here, but we have Guy. How good are those stress tests? No, you know, he's, he's ready to go. He's I'm, ready. I'm to- just, I'm like, <laughs> I'm just. I'm like a Vesuvius, <laughs> Etna, for you Italian volcano fans out there. The stress tests are complete horseshit, and we addressed this last week on the On The Tape podcast, but I'll address it again. I mean, they're backward-looking. All the problems that they stress for are no longer problems. We've already capitalized these banks to the hilt. Problems, obviously, in duration and interest rate risk, which they weren't solving for. And the fact that the 16th largest bank in the world – would have passed that effing stress test is disastrous. So how much confidence you have in it? And I'll just add this to it because why not? Do this at your Google machine, folks, while you're listening to this On The Tape podcast. Look at the performance of Silicon Valley Bank into the fall of 2021 vis-a-vis JP, whatever friggin' bank you want to pull up. And it's extraordinary how well that bank did, not being under the auspices of all this shit, free to left to their own devices, as opposed to the other banks. You think that's friggin' coincidence? Earlier this week on Fast Money, Karen Feinerman, who I love and I have tremendous amount of respect for, and she, you know, she really goes deep into financials and, and she's invested there and she's a value investor. And you know, it's interesting, Danny, she she and I had a back and forth on some of this stuff. And he, like you, reads the K's and the Q's, right? And so, you know, we had this retort where she retorted to my comment about reading the K's in some of the big money centers. And so I think it's really interesting because we didn't really have a lot of time to go into it, but the problem is, is that they are obviously backward looking, right? The stress tests are supposed to stress for the future. But if I think about the financial crisis and the disclosures that come in the Ks, they're ephemeral, meaning like market conditions will shift. And so think about how rates have moved just in the last couple of weeks and whatever you had in your K at the end of 2022, right? Which came out after that. I mean, it doesn't really matter in, in my opinion, right? So, and you've used this term now a couple times, if Schwab is going to hedge a portion of this portfolio or any of these banks that have similar duration mismatches, then they're going to actually take charges against their earnings. And then what comes with that? And how do market conditions change in the meantime? And that is the story of 08 and 09. That is how equity value for once great franchises gets absolutely destroyed in the public markets. And that's the only point that I'm trying to make. And I'm not one of these guys who's coming on and averaging down the whole way during a freaking bear market or during some sort of crisis in a sector and never acknowledging the issues and then waking up two years later and saying, hey, look, we're back, but we trade at a much bigger discount to book than we ever did before, but the stocks come back a bit. I mean, like, so I guess that's my kind of point here. It is important to read the Qs and the Ks, 10Ks and 10Qs, and then an 8K when they try to slide that in for some type of announcement. And all this stuff was kind of right in front of us. How we think about kind of the big banks here is that they're going to be fine. Unfortunately for the regulators, they're going to get bigger. They're not that expensive on book value. If you believe there's not going to be more hit to book value, but on an ROE basis, they're certainly going to earn less. On a net interest margin, they're certainly going to earn less. And you have some names that are trading already below book value, but their ability to earn is certainly going to be harder in this environment. So it's kind of a long only portfolio manager that has to have exposure to the financials. Just keep this in mind. If the weighting on the S&P is 10 to 12% for banks and financials in general, you are certainly going to be tilting those towards those kind of safe names, in my opinion. And so I think it's going to be hard to really break the big ones down. Now, within the big ones, there's going to be winners and losers for sure. Some have better balance sheets than others. So some to keep an eye on. But guy, I haven't done this rot in a while and Stuart has never been around for it. Can you Tell Stuart what this is, because this is related directly to Dan's comment and what I just commented well, it's interesting, on. Because I happen to know for a fact that Stuart's a longtime listener of the On the Tape podcast. And he would email me on Saturdays and say, Holy shit, I love that Danny Moses rot. 
and then recently said, you know, we haven't heard one in a while. So it's perfect timing, really, because he's here for it live. So without further ado, Danny Moses. Rip off the tape, as we say. And I have a new acronym that I want to start. Forget this BTFP. STFU. There are three people out there specifically that are saying certain things about this, quote, banking crisis are driving me insane. And just as a way of backup, I was all for protecting CIVB depositors because I believed the unknowingness and what it would do to the economy. Now, that being said, I'm starting to have feelings that maybe I shouldn't have been because of what I'm seeing come out after the fact. But David Sachs, you know, who is part of the All In podcast, who started Craft Ventures, and yeah, he was at PayPal back when, certainly a very smart guy, but let me just say has benefited, obviously, from easy money for a long time. I mean, a venture capital firm monetizing certain of these assets, blaming short sellers for the bank run. Let me just be very clear. The short sellers did not cause, if anything, the short sellers could have prevented it if people had listened to them back in the fall when this was happening and they shorted up their capital when they could have or should have. So I violently disagree with that. He's blaming spike in interest rates and, and all this stuff going, well, that was all happening in real time. That did not just come on in general. So the pleading and the begging is ridiculous. Then I go to Ackman, Bill Ackman, who is a smart guy. He's been around the block. He's seen a lot of different markets, calling this a banking crisis, saying the access to low cost capital for these banks has gone away. That's a, called a cycle, Bill. Those are cycles. This is how it goes. This is how things clean up. If you can't fund certain things in zombie businesses that never should have been around anyway, so now you got Ackman. And then bring in the, the king of all this. And I, this isn't even a Tesla. This is just Elon Musk making comments that the Fed needs to drop the rate by at least 50 basis points, that the major driver of deposits flight is people moving money from low interest rate savings accounts. Thank you for that report from the sidelines, Elon Musk, on what has just occurred. These people, and I put Saxon Musk together, I put Ackman in a different category. Most disappointed by Ackman, like begging and pleading. Trade the market, man. I know you have vested interest in, in certain of your investments and maybe your insurance hold co and all this stuff. We're all exposed, but you're a professional investor and trade around and stop really bitching and moaning about it. So that stuff has incensed me in the last week. So all this stuff was coming. We knew the Fed was raising rates. We knew this. I was on the balance sheets of various banks and you adjust to it. You can't, you tell me that you can't perform or make money as a fund manager or as a venture capital manager in a rising rate environment. Guess what? You shouldn't be in the business then. I mean, I loved it. Thank you so much, man. That was great yeah. to be here in person. Everyone <laughs> listening, you should have been here. All those people you mentioned, they're talking the book. These are book talkers. They all got like an angst to grind. We could go through each one, why rates need to be lower or why they needed a bailout. They all talk in the book. I would just say this, SVB ultimately at the beginning, what started, the, you know, that meme with the dominoes where you touch the small one and it ends with the big one with, with SVB going down. When you think about what they did wrong initially was listening to the Fed. That's what they did, right? They listened to the Fed. It was transitory. They YOLO'd the bonds and they believed the dot plots. And I think all that we've been saying today is don't listen to them. I mean, if any of you under the delusion that Bill Ackman is somehow this altruistic guy that's putting this shit out on Twitter to help the United States or mankind, you're doing it wrong, people. I mean, you're buying into a lot of bullshit. Blind Faith, by the way, was a great band, Dan Nathan, if you recall. Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker. I think it was uh, Jack Bruce might have been the other one. Danny might know. But it's a shitty way to live life. So if you're bowing at the altar of a Bill Ackman, find another effing altar. We catch a lot of shit over here, but, which is fine. We got thick skin. I just want to say this about Musk, the, how he weighs in on, on this sort of stuff. He didn't have a word to say about the SIVB thing. You know, he spent $44 billion to own the libs buying Twitter, okay? He overpaid by... by $30 billion, okay, does nothing to say about the ecosystem in which he has been a massive beneficiary for 25 years during that whole situation, but he sends his dog out, David Sachs, you know, like the, the guy to do all his dirty work, and that guy, I think our friend Wall Street Cynic, that would be Jim Chanos, who, who's a friend of the pod, comes on the pod, he's just, uh, he keeps quote-tweeting David Sachs, just saying, keep digging, keep digging. I just think that's really funny. And then the last thing I'll just say about Musk, for all of you guys who bow at the altar of all his bullshit, I bring you back to a tweet from March 6, 2020. The tweet was, the coronavirus panic is dumb. And I'm just going to leave it at that, okay, for the biggest genius who's ever lived on the planet. So there's my little mini rot. Stick around, Stuart, because when we come back, we're going to take some listener questions and we're going to effort some answers.
With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Dan, it's important to point out some of the work that our man Butters does at FactSet in terms of just valuations and what's going on and how the market is viewing the current valuation and where we potentially go this yeah, year. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. So that would be John Butters. We just know him as hashtag Butters, but he is the senior earnings insight analyst over there at FactSet who often comes on our market call program with what's happened with rates over the last, let's call it week, what's happened at rates over the last year that we spent a lot of time talking about. I mean, that's one of the, obviously, the huge inputs as far as equity valuations here. And even at these very elevated levels, right, year over year, despite them coming in. We just had a Fed that raised a quarter point on Fed funds rate. I look at the S&P 500, and Butters is kind of reporting here. We're trading at about 17.1 times is below the five-year average, about 18.5 times and 10-year average of 17.3. Do you guys think, with where rates are right now, that the S&P 500 should basically be trading at the 10-year average PE on a forward basis? It makes no sense to me. Doesn't make any sense to me, and I've said for a while. I mean, if you listen to David Tepper came on a few months ago, and he pointed out that the multiple for the S and P has gone as low as eleven or twelve. We saw that fifteen, sixteen or so years ago. He wasn't submitting that was in the cards, but he was pointing out we have seen that before, and I don't think we're going to get there either. But to see a fifteen multiple in this environment off of two hundred, two hundred and ten dollars worth of earnings, I mean, again, we can all do the math, and people will say, look. Earnings and the multiple don't trough at the same time. Yes, I get it, but something's got to give on that front. Hal said he was going 50 bips until the Silicon Valley Bank thing happened. We're already seeing tightening credit conditions in general. That would equally lower multiple on the S&P and potentially lower earnings. I don't even need to answer that question, Dan. The answer is lower, Bob. I like that. Was that a question? Was was that a host question? Yeah, that was, was just, that, just, just that was a host oh, question. Yeah, but I thought maybe the Dan from Omaha. No, but or I somebody. have a question okay. for you, Danny. This yeah. is from Wander Bernstein, who oddly enough is at Wander Bernstein. Demo. I wonder. Wanda, I wonder. Yeah. If Wouldn't that be weird though if there was like at Wander Bernstein five four two or something like that? Like if there was that many Listen, Wander Bernstein. I mean, I, I get those people all the time, like thousands of them that come after me. Anyway, rip guy. I don't know what this question Demo, is actually. I'm not prepared. If you for it. could yeah. explain your reservation about GLD relative to PHYS as a gold ETF, given things aren't supposed to go wrong, go wrong often these days. What's the risk the mere mortals are not seeing? PHYS is a closed-end fund run by Sprott in Canada where they actually have the physical gold in their possession. GLD is effectively a right to claim that gold. I think there's way too much, quote, synthetic gold trading around what physical is kind of out there. So I'm much more comfortable. Again, you can trade GLG for a directional trading gold that you're not going to hold a long period of time and achieve kind of, I want to make money from gold going higher. But PHYS, to me, is a much safer way to play it because, God forbid, you actually need to claim that gold. They actually have it. We've seen those inventories really be in demand, right? We've seen physical delivery on silver. We've, we've seen the CBOT call out like there's some problems here. So I think this is pretty interesting when you start to see divergence between paper versus delivery. You start to see that supply side issue and like then is confidence in the piping and the plumbing again, right? 
That is a story that's coming to a theater near you. Just remember this word, Comex Inventories. It's two words, but remember them. We'll talk about it at some point. Dan Nathan, this is for you. This is from Gitga Batla at Gitga Batla on the Twitter. The daily big swings in the market confuse me. One day it's doom, and the next day as if nothing wrong ever happened. Dan, how should first-time investors assess this? I am afraid to put money to work. I would approach a period like this with caution because when you see the volatility bands widen like this, but like the VIX, for instance, okay, trading at a level very near the low end of its two-year range, to me, that's actually a dangerous cocktail. You know, we've heard a lot about these zero days to expiration options that are trading, huge notional value on a daily basis here. I think it's causing some of that volatility. And like some people far smarter than me on this is saying that under the hood, this is a really difficult situation, especially when you see the sort of volatility that we're seeing in the rates market that we're seeing in commodities and foreign exchange. For some reason, and Guy, I'd love to get your take on this. It's like, you know, you and I have been doing this a long time. We've been commenting on this stuff a long time. It seems like the equity markets are usually the last ones to get the memo here. And when you think about every other risk asset, including crypto, for that matter, that have just been literally the volatility has been insane. The fact that the S&P 500 looks pinned to like 3950 just seems like a nod in currency. I think so much of it has to do with this passive investing that's been de rigueur for you French fans out there for years now. I think money comes into the equity market regardless of what's going on. And that basically mitigates all the bad news and all the reasons why equity should be lower. My concern all along, Dan, has been when passive investing becomes active investing, it ain't going to be active on the way up. That's just my thoughts. We have a question for Swizzle here. This is for Bradley Summer, not Andy Summers, oddly enough, who was He's the guitarist. He's my boy, by the way. I know him. You know Bradley? I know this guy. Oh, well, there you go. Good guy, yeah. He comes out at Summer underscore Bradley. I've been surprised how yield hasn't been weaker considering rate moves and concerns of recession. Thoughts, and do you think SJB is a good way to play it? If you agree, high yield will weaken into a weakening economy. I am not familiar, Danny Moses, with the SJB. I am familiar with the HYG. And as we're sitting here, today is Thursday. You saw a pretty significant sell-off in the high yield ETF today. Again, comes out HYG. It doesn't move precipitously, but when it does, it's typically the precursor of something. And again, I think credit is going to be the last shoe to drop. And I look at it through the HYG. I'm not saying you should trade it, but I'm saying you should watch it, Danny. That's a $13 billion ETF, this HYG. There's 1,200 different holdings in it. The average duration is kind of four to five years. It's trading right now at about 4.5% over those four to five year treasury comp. So it is widening and that's pretty much going to drive it all. And I'll tell you that 21% of the fund is kind of exposed to consumer cyclical and then 17% like telecom, like charter. So it's got some okay stuff, but it's got some shit. And so as a group, you know, it feels diversified, but again, this is what the Fed was buying when the COVID started when they were buying stuff like this. And so you have some zombie companies that never probably should have been bailed out. Folks, over the last hour, you got a Danny Moses rot you got Dan Nathan out there back from vacation. You got a somewhat exercised G-Swizzle. You got a lot of police songs, songs you probably haven't heard about or thought about for years. But most importantly, you got the great Stuart Sop, the CEO and co-founder of Current. It has been an absolute honor to have you join us on the podcast. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.